Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with Marcus Kauke. Today, I have the author of a fantastic book, Bullseye Marketing, Louis Gadema. And Louis, would you mind just doing a quick introduction to who you are and your background in marketing? Hi, Marcus. Thanks for having me on. I'll try to skip the who am I question and maybe talk about my background in marketing. That might be easier and more interesting for your listeners. So I've been working in marketing for over 30 years. My first client was Coleco Toys at the height of Cabbage Patch Kids. So those who are old enough to remember Cabbage Patch Kids, that will bring back something. And at the time, Cabbage Patch Kids, the doll, in their first year sold more dolls than the entire doll category the year before. So it was a massive hit. So that opened an awful lot of doors for me working on that. I I certainly had a tiny, 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 tiny impact, if any, on that success, but it was quite a rocket to ride. So then I've worked with hundreds of companies and organizations. Since then, I have founded my own marketing agency in 1998. We served primarily large corporate accounts and then pivoted to become a SaaS agency designing and developing websites for small colleges and what we call in the U.S. private schools. I think you call them public schools over there. Yep. And then had a successful exit in 2009, did business development, VP of business development for two other mid-sized marketing agencies. And now I'm running my own virtual agency again, serving companies from startups to multi-billion dollar companies. And, And with a special emphasis on helping companies grow by helping their channel partners grow. Well, that's obviously an issue very close to my heart. Before we go into that, tell me how you came about to write Bullseye Marketing and talk to me about the framework that you've developed. So what I was noticing four or five years ago was that a lot of approaches that get a lot of buzz in the marketing world weren't really working for for a number of the clients that I had. And specifically, for example, inbound marketing and social media, organic social media. And at the same time, many of these companies were not doing some of the fundamentals of marketing, some of the real, uh, what we would call blocking and tackling, you know, just the basics. And so I, I actually did some research in 2014. I have this nine-point digital marketing scorecard right. where I can tell from the outside I developed it while I was doing business development for, for other companies so that I could be informed about what marketing they were doing before we really had it got into the conversation. And it's a nine-point scorecard where I can see from the outside, do they have a marketing automation program? At the time, did they have a mobile-friendly website, which the vast majority of companies in 2014 still did not? Were they active on social media? Were they using search advertising? So using a combination of tags and third-party tools, I scored companies on this and, and decided to really do a systematic study of it and looked at 351 B2B companies with about 50 to 1,000 employees. So these are substantial companies. These are not companies, they're not solopreneurs, they're not micro companies with five or 10 employees. Many of them had been around for years and and even decades, and some operate on a global basis. And what I found was that the software companies were very sophisticated marketers. Their median was that they were using seven of these nine programs. And the non-software companies in sectors like manufacturing and and medical devices and professional services 
were only using a median of two of the nine. And they got one point just for having Google Analytics on their website. So that effectively meant that they really had no real marketing uh, program going. And I actually updated those, uh, that study. I went back to the same 351 companies a few months ago to see what, if anything, had changed. And those non-software companies had only risen from a two to a three, the median of three, which was almost totally due to them now having mobile-friendly websites, responsive websites, as opposed to four or five years ago when they did not. And so they didn't even have the basics in place. And, and I also saw that in that study, the software companies that had the highest scores were growing five times faster than those with very low scores. So there really was a direct impact from the marketing to growth rate. And so what I was recommending to my clients often was, you've got to get your website right. You've got to have calls to action and conversion opportunities. You've got to get sales and marketing working together better. You need to set up remarketing. And this is where the bullseye framework came from. So, so the center of the bullseye is what I call taking advantage of existing marketing assets that companies have, but the vast majority of B2B companies don't take advantage of. And, and just ticked off several of them. Email lists is another one. It's so common when you talk to a, a company and start to work with them and say, how many emails do you have? We have 20,000, 10,000, whatever the number may be for an SMB or an SME. And you say, well, when you know, did you last uh, use them? How often do you use them? And they say, oh, we send out an email around the holidays or twice a year. And yet, McKinsey says that email marketing is 40 times more effective for customer acquisition than organic social media. But organic social media gets a ton of uh, buzz. You know, the thing, Marcus, is that marketing channels become kind of what I call exhausted. If you're the first one in a new channel, you can really have an impact for your company. But if you're the last one, or a few years later, everybody's doing it, and then it just becomes the cost of doing business. You have to do it or you're left behind. So the center of the bullseye is taking advantage of those existing marketing assets that often can be done very quickly, inexpensively, and start to produce results in a, in a matter of a few months, not years. The second ring of the bullseye is getting in front of companies or customers who want to buy now. Our markets are much smaller than we think they are because unless we're selling something that people buy every day, like food, most companies just aren't looking to buy something or switch vendors. They may, in some in particular fields, they may do that every reevaluated every three years, but in others, it may be every five years or 10 years. Or, yeah. and, and so you can say our total addressable market is X, but this year, your total addressable market may be one-tenth of X. So how do you use search advertising and intent data to get in front of companies who want to buy now and not dilute your marketing with all of across all those companies that, that aren't going to buy soon. And then the third ring, the outer ring of the bullseye, is using those long-term awareness and brand building programs like inbound marketing and, and organic social media and a number of others, PR, influencer marketing, that are slow. They typically don't produce results these days in even a year or two. 
But in the long run, they can do a lot to build your brand and awareness so that when a company does come into market to buy something, you're top of mind for them. So that's how the bullseye uh, framework works. Very interesting. You mentioned something, intent data. I can hazard a guess at what it means. Do you mind explaining that in a little bit more detail? Sure. Intent data is something that marketers use to identify in the consumer market people or in the B2B market companies that intend to buy soon. And they're, they're expressing that intent through their actions. Searching is the obvious one. Since we all, whether we're searching for a personal purchase or a business purchase, we all use search very typically very early on in the process to both learn about solutions and identify uh, vendors or uh, potential products that we could use. So in addition to search, there are third-party vendors who collect this data over a number of websites or sources. For example, Amazon and Kroger both have massive amounts of data around consumer purchase intent that they use for their advertising platforms. And it's available for for some third parties. On the B2B side, you've got companies like Bombora or uh, the Big Willow and others, Tech Target, that aggregate data across hundreds or thousands of sites. And what they're looking for is what they call a surge in activity. So suddenly you see company X for the last six months has not been searching on this topic, routers or whatever it may be, marketing automation software, whatever the the topic may be. Suddenly you're seeing four or five people at that company searching and reading articles on it. And that kind of activity can suggest intent that something's going on at that company. They're now looking at that and considering buying it, considering changing vendors. And so some of those B2B intent data companies, they actually have not just the account name, but they may have individual names within those accounts, and they sell those to vendors. How fascinating. I didn't realize there was that level of granularity available in the B2B space. Everything you are doing is being watched. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I know it's being watched. I didn't realize that you could purchase that kind of data. Yeah, absolutely. Some companies have had great success with it. Very interesting. So you mentioned channels. Obviously, that's an area that's very close to my heart. What are the mistakes that you're seeing people make with respect to marketing with and through their channel? Well, I think the big challenge with channels is actually very similar to what it is in many in general in that SMB market in general which is that the vendors are often very sophisticated about their marketing and the partners are often not very sophisticated or active at all. Obviously, the large partners, you, you, know, you have some channel partners who are huge, who may be bigger than some of the vendors that they carry, and they know a lot about marketing. But I'm talking about the thousands of small and mid-sized channel partners, such as professional service firms, implementers, resellers, who, like many other SMBs, have great knowledge about their industry, they have great technical expertise, and yet they don't have any sense of how marketing can be used to grow their company faster. And you know, a point that you make in your 
book, Marcus, is that a channel program has to be about the partner. If the vendor is only trying to push product onto the partners and jam it down the channel, then the channel is going to be as unresponsive to that as anyone would be when having things shoved on them. But if the partner, if the vendor rather, shows real interest in helping the partner succeed and having a successful business and helps them through education and training understand how they can market their business better and grow it faster, and that the selling through of the product by the partner, when they do that, will increase, then that's a win-win. Then that's something that's going to be great for the partner, and it's going to be great for the vendor as well. Absolutely. I've spent a lot of time talking to Jay McBain, particularly around his research in the channel. And what's really interesting is the level of complexity that channel managers face in their role, particularly around marketing, because they've got to measure it, they've got to help and develop the marketing to sell through to and with the partner. They have to make sure there's alignment there. They've got to be capturing competitive intelligence, sharing best practice. It's such a complex area. If you're a small vendor and you have limited bandwidth, limited resources, where should you really be focusing your attention when you're developing your channel-based marketing? Well, there's a lot of things that vendors often do well. They have an understanding of the customer. They may provide MDF funds. They may have collateral or they may have templates that partners can use in their marketing. I think that often, you tell me if you, you see this, I know that you say that sales is, is part of marketing, but I often see a greater emphasis on sales in the uh, vendors than in helping the partners with marketing. So they may have a lot of programs in place around that, but you still have the fundamental reality that many of the partners, and the vendors can identify which ones those are pretty quickly, really understand and are active in marketing and which ones are not. And so that's where they need to focus some of their partner education around both explaining how they market and why they use digital marketing and all the channels and programs that they're using and why it would be beneficial to the partners if they would start to do something similar, which may not be easy even with the bullseye approach, which emphasizes those existing marketing assets that the partners already have and that they can improve things quickly, improve results quickly by taking advantage of them. We're all 100% busy. And so any new major initiative like marketing takes time. It takes some commitment, even if it doesn't take huge piles of money initially. So partners do have to make the time available to learn about it, to work with whoever their, their marketing partner is, and to get those programs running. Where I see this fall down, frankly, Marcus, is often in the execution. I can work up the strategies. Lots of marketers who can work up the strategies. But a lot of times, it's in the execution that the partners just aren't committed enough to that day-to-day, week-to-week, getting it done in the same way you have to in sales, in the same way you have to 
in any part of a successful business. This really brings up the key question of the kind of relationship and the ground rules that a vendor will establish with their partners right from the outset. One of the things we concentrate on in our book, Making Channel Sales Work, is really to make sure that you agree up front what the expectations are on both Mm -hmm. sides. So what are the best practices you're seeing where vendors are working with new partners and the expectations that they're establishing for the two sides to work collaboratively together to make sure that they get good marketing activity, that there is that level of commitment and execution, and it's consistent? Well, it really varies so much in talking with and working with various channel programs and the people in them. You often hear, and you've probably heard this too, Marcus, that sometimes 50% of partners will deliver very little. And it's kind of the 80-20 rule. You know, you've got that 10 or 20% of partners who are delivering 80% of the revenue, maybe another 20 or 30% who are doing okay. And then you've got this long tail of the other 50% of partners who aren't selling through much at all, but may do one or two deals a year. Do you often see that? I see that all the time. And I think the criticism I would level at vendors is they recruit too many too soon and they don't invest enough time in the onboarding process and the expectation management. And as a result of that, the reseller or the partner will go dark on them very quickly because they're not seeing money coming into their coffers and they'll just get distracted to the next shiny object. Is that yeah. something you've recognized? Yeah, well, that is something you talk about in your book, and it, it exactly aligns with the center of my bullseye. You're saying in your book that vendors have to, get, have to make their partners successful quickly. If yeah. they aren't starting to get some revenue out of it in 90 or 120 days, they're going to start to say, well, this isn't an important product for us. And like you said, go on to something else. And it may just be one more item on their line card, but it's not something that gets real attention. And their salespeople aren't really paying attention you know, or, or really pushing it. And the same thing with my bullseye approach, those center of the bullseye programs are intended to be low cost and very fast to implement so that companies can see impact in 90 to 120 days. And you can start to build buy-in confidence in the program and uh, deepening it and then going into those stage two and stage three programs. I think what the best vendors are doing when they're onboarding is they do education around their product and they do education around sales. And the best ones are doing education around how to market as well. And that includes how to market the company, but that's not always the case. And for some of the uh, partners, that may not be something that they're, that part of the onboarding may be something like, why are you telling us how to market our company? I just want to know about your product. So it's on both sides that there has to be that uh, both the uh, providing it and the receptivity to it. This then raises another issue because I think one thing I see an awful lot of, particularly within tech, which is my particular sweet spot, is that 
very often they're great at providing educational material around the product, but they're not terribly good at being able to help the partner to sell. And the emphasis on product is kind of like showing photos of your children to strangers. And (laughs) there's not enough emphasis on, well, that's great. So how do I turn that feature, that benefit into something I can sell? Because the story doesn't really focus on the problems or the pains that the customer has that needs to be fixed. And I see this all the time. And even with very well-established, huge software vendors, they spend all of their time talking about the product. And when they go in and they're doing sales with their partner, they talk about the product. And to me, that strikes me as madness because no one in the history of humanity has ever woken up and said, you know what I really want? An HR module. I want a CRM. There's a pain that underpins it. And I'm curious why more marketeers don't really educate their sales force on those stories than uh, look at it through the customer's eyes. Because I think a lot of marketing that I see is very selfish. And it's about the stuff that the vendor thinks is important. And as a result of that, the partners talk about that stuff. And the customer just wants to glaze over it. Is that fair? It can depend. You do have some very technical areas. If someone's in the market for a new computer chip for their new device, they may be totally down in the weeds about the technical specs of that chip, and they don't need a story. They're just looking for what that chip can do and how much power it's going to consume and so forth. But for most products, I think you're absolutely right. But at the same time, you're in the sales training area. And I remember a couple of years ago talking to uh, another trainer that I know and saying, what are you training people on anyway, you know, when you're doing sales training? And he said, oh, you know, listening, finding out what the real needs are, coming up with solutions. And I said, really? That's, they still need training on that? And he oh, said, oh, yeah. Badly, they need training. Yeah, exactly. So I, I think it's true on, on the sales side. I think it's true on the marketing side. It can be true on either side. And sometimes customers can... I think that the best marketing involves those customer stories. It involves the customer voice because, frankly, the company voice is not highly trusted these days. If a company is saying we have a great product and we're awesome, like you said, that's easy to say and lots of companies say it and that doesn't carry a lot of weight with customers. What does carry a lot of weight with customers is the customer voice. And hearing customers say that company was really good, their solutions are really good, and even a a level of authenticity where they say, you know, and we did have problems along the way, but they were great at working through them. I remember a few years ago, I heard Tony Shea, who is the founder of Zappos, give a talk. And he was saying that they found out in the first year or so of the company that their most loyal customers were the ones who returned, the ones who bought, the customers who bought the most were the ones who returned their first purchase. How interesting. Because they were the ones who were testing the Zappos promise that you can just return it at no cost, no questions asked, and buy something else or not, and we'll take it back. And once they had done that and they saw it really was true and it worked, 
that cemented the relationship. Now they trusted Zappos and they were happy to come back and buy a lot from them. And so I agree that companies often have to put out those kinds of stories, but it can be challenging, you know, especially you were asking about smaller partners or smaller software vendors. And they, you know, if they have very limited marketing resources initially, they may not be thinking about customer-centric stories. They may be thinking, people don't even know what we do. They don't even know what we have. Let's start by educating on, the, on that, at least. Well, this is really interesting because we teach the absolute opposite of that. You sell today, you educate tomorrow. And to pick up on your earlier point, that one of the most fundamental rules in sales is prospects never believe what you tell them. They believe mm-hmm. a little of what you show them. They believe quite a bit of what other people tell them. And that's why customer third-party stories are very powerful. But they believe everything they tell themselves. What's really interesting, certainly from our perspective, is how critical it is for salespeople and marketeers to get the prospect to paint their own picture, to tell their story, to diagnose their own problem. And I think one of the things that I see uh, that I would classify as bad marketing is where they focus on the product. They focus on trying to educate rather than sell. And I'm a big fan of educating, but it has to be the right type of education and it does you no harm. And what I see happening a lot is where they educate and it does the company harm because the prospect in their mind has a little checkbox that gets ticked off and it says, I know where I need to go if I ever need that. And it doesn't keep them in their own narrative. So I'm curious, in terms of the changing face of the way technology in particular is being sold, Forrester's research is suggesting that 80% of technology decisions will be made and paid for by the line of business in 2019. Now, this creates massive shift in terms of the necessary understanding of the culture and the type of messaging and the type of marketing and the type of selling that vendors and their partners need to adopt. So I'm really curious to find out, A, has that been, are you seeing that in your own work? And what can people do in order to make sure that they're getting that message across all the different stakeholders who are likely to be involved in a purchase decision? Yeah, well, that's not surprising. I mean, that's been the the trend for several years now, as you said, because of SaaS and the cloud. If you're talking about software, the end user doesn't have to go through IT often. The more enterprise, the more sophisticated solutions they have to partner with IT because it's going to have to integrate with several other systems in the company. And so in a lot of companies, you have this partnership between the line of business and IT so that IT will support whatever solutions the, the lines of business need and give the, uh, the keys to the kingdom so that it can integrate with some of their other systems or some of their data and so forth. But that's not surprising. The challenge that all of us have, Marcus, is there's so much marketing and selling going on. Getting anyone's attention even for a few minutes, is such a challenge now. 
I mean, I'm sure that you get many email solicitations every day, many calls every day, as do I. And so it's how do they get any attention from them at all? That's why that, uh, that second phase of the bullseye is so important because that's using that intent data to find out who's actually in market now rather than the 90% of the industry of the total addressable market that just is not going to be interested at all. Louis, tell me something. You mentioned enterprise. What we see in our world when we're um, selling enterprise sales training is you have long sales cycles, very sophisticated competition, a need to focus on business value, very wide and diverse buyer networks, massive cost of pursuit. I was talking to one MSP client of mine, and it cost them up to £200,000 to win a pursuit. Very complex decision structures, cross-functional sales teams, and a very diversified organization and footprint. What that means is a massive level of sophistication and complexity and having to nuance their messaging. So I'd really love to understand what's happening in the marketplace to look at how organizations can collaborate because within the channel, there are lots of channel partners that may be involved at different stages. How does the marketing get coordinated to ensure that the right messages are getting through to the line of business and to the people who are stakeholders and influencers? Well, I think there's a couple things. I mean, first of all, you have in different parts of the buying process, you know, what some people call the buying journey, in different parts of that buying process, people are looking for different kinds of information. Early in the buying process, they're looking for just general knowledge about what's being offered, what's thought leadership around this area, what are some of the best companies doing. In the second phase, as they get into more of a consideration phase, they're looking at what are the options, what are the solutions, who are the vendors that we can actually talk to, who may be able to help us. In the third phase, as they get closer to actually closing you know, and buying, they're looking for some validation to make sure that the vendor really is as good as they say they are. They may have to go to a CFO and, and justify ROI or, or what can they replace. So marketing has to help by having lots of different kinds of content that speaks to buyers in those different stages of their buying process. But then marketing and sales have to work together. This is often, especially in an enterprise situation, as you were describing, in an account-based marketing approach where sales really has a, a leading role of helping marketing understand what's unique about that account. What are the major issues with that account? What's the relationship that vendor has had with that account over time or the vendor and the partner have had with that account over time? And how can they create, if you're talking about a 200,000 pound sales cost for one deal, it's well worth it to create customized, personalized materials for sales that relate to just that company. And either that help get you in the door initially or to progress the sale through the process. And, and so a lot of that can involve having sales say to marketing, this is what we need now. 
these are the kinds of materials, this is the kind of research, this is the kind of customized report or ROI calculation or whatever it may be that can help move this deal forward. In the book, you talk about developing customer personas with sales and marketing collaborating. Do you mind talking a little bit about that? Because I think it's pertinent to what we've just been discussing. Yeah, well, absolutely. And certainly value propositions fit into that as well. You have to understand, if you're doing an enterprise sale, there's typically at a minimum of five or six different roles involved in the purchase. And sometimes it may be you know, six or eight. It's, it's certainly a, a buying committee. You may have some people who are influencers, some people who are decision makers. Some are those line of business users. But if it's a very large sale, you may have some senior executives who have to sign off at some point. You may have IT. There's certainly, even within the line of business, the difference between the managers and the end users and who's going to be involved in saying that this is the solution that they need. And so all of those really can require different personas, the development of different personas, so that you understand personas are kind of an aggregated profile of a customer where you're saying, this is a typical manager in this department. This is what they're evaluated on. This is what's important to them. These are the pain points, the competitive issues that they have. Here are the messages that, that tend to resonate with that position. And what are the emotional drivers for them? Because people buy with emotion, but justify with logic. Absolutely. And so even understanding what are the emotional messages, or as someone that I've worked with talks about emotional keywords, the actual just phrasing, the difference between two different phrasings of a message can, can have a dramatic impact on how effective it is. So all of that can go into a persona. And for a large enterprise sale, there may be six or eight of those or more. And at the same time, you need to be articulating so that you know and you can communicate to the customer, what is that customer-centric value proposition? What is it that you're going to provide them beyond the, the techs and specs that really will make a difference in their business and that is why you deserve to be their vendor. So one thing that we're very hot on is early disqualification. How can your marketing help to disqualify? Because when you have high cost of pursuit, like I've described, an early qualified out is a win. It's like saving a goal in football or soccer. And I'm curious, have you done any work around that to make sure that if there is an opportunity, you know that it's real fast. This is something, you know, you've got your, I guess at this point, we can call it traditional kind of funnel of uh, contacts, prospects, marketing qualified leads, sales qualified leads, opportunities and wins. And it's in that early process, that at the very least, you can be using something like lead scoring to say, okay, these people are in the right industry, they're in the right demographic, they're not just a student, they're not just a tire kicker. But ultimately, especially for those enterprise deals, it may require marketing to have personal conversation with every prospect that they're considering qualifying and sending on to sales. I had a, a customer once who was uh, involved with an enterprise sale, and they were 
their head of digital marketing was telling me how they had gotten a form submitted that looked perfect. And it was like a vice president and a you know, big company, blah, blah, blah. And yet when they called up the person, it was a 13-year-old kid. And so marketing certainly has a role in taking a first pass at all of the, the leads that they generate. There's a responsibility usually on both sides. Marketing is going to generate a certain amount of marketing-qualified leads. Sales through its prospecting or farming is going to generate a certain amount of leads for itself as well. And I know you've said in your book that prospecting is the right of every salesperson. You know, it's the, the thing that you need to be doing to keep the, your uh, pipeline full and, and give yourself choice, which is a great way of putting it. So each side has responsibilities. Each side has obligations to the others when those leads are qualified and they do come in. But marketing certainly has to uh, take an active role in qualifying out poor leads that it has. Absolutely. You mentioned, I think justifiably, that people have fallen in love with things like social media. I've I've been reading uh, Matthew Syed's book on big box thinking. There was a really interesting concept in there, which is that you should try and break your hypothesis. And he gives this example of a sequence of numbers, two, four, six. And then people leap to a conclusion that it's a rising chain of numbers increasing in twos, or it's even numbers increasing, or it's the last number is the addition of previous two numbers. But it could just as easily be that the number sequence is any rising value of the numbers. So you could try and break your hypothesis by instead of going 2, 4, 6, 8, you might go 2, 4, 6, 11, 72 and see if it still uh, holds water. I'm curious how marketeers can use their or fall into the trap of believing their own heuristic and getting stuck in that confirmation bias and how they need to use testing and trial and error to improve the quality of their marketing and capture those lessons? Well, I think it's a particular... So first of all, they have to be... You used to have this situation in marketing where people came with a creative psychology sort of background. And now data is so important and technology is so important. And so you need both sides to your team and you need to have your people who are looking at it from a data point of view about what's really working. But you do also have these some of these programs which kind of simultaneously are best at or very good at communicating some of the things that you were saying, Marcus, you want to communicate around customer success stories and, and something more than text and specs around the content marketing, but also are the hardest to measure. If you have a search ad campaign, you can measure pretty quickly how many clicks you're getting and are those turning into leads or are those turning into actual sales. If you have some great content around customer success, that can be much harder to actually validate. And it's especially true for small and mid-sized companies because in large companies, you have enough data. But small and mid-sized companies, and this is often a challenge for partners who are many of them who are small and mid-sized, the data simply isn't statistically significant. They don't have enough of it. For example, I was talking to a predictive analytics vendor 
And well, let me tell this from the other side. I was at a sales presentation from a predictive analytics vendor, and they were there with Adobe and Dell EMC. And Adobe was talking about how it had a thousand leads a day that it had to quickly score and do, as you were saying before, give a thumbs up, thumbs down on these leads. Do they go to sales? Do they go to nurturing? Or are they just junk? And that they were using kind of a traditional lead scoring, but then when they tried predictive analytics, they were able to get 95% of them scored successfully within one minute and had hugely more successful programs. Dell was saying the same thing. They had millions of customers as, as they started to use predictive analytics. They could start to tease out which were the ones that were you know, most likely to buy in the next 6 or 12 months, where should sales focus, and so forth. And I said, that's great for people who have millions of customers and thousands of leads a day, but what about the rest of us? Because I had talked to a, another predictive analytics vendor who said the minimum size to, of data that they needed from a, one of the companies that they work for is that company needed to have at least 400 customers and it needed to have at least 100,000 contacts in their CRM. That's fairly sizable. That's bigger than most companies. From a and, standpoint, then anyone less than that wouldn't be that customer, I guess. Yeah, exactly. But then they can't use that very advanced marketing tool. So, and that's the same thing with sometimes a small and mid sized company. I was VP of business development at an agency where a trial for a Google ads, search ads campaign, just testing it for a, a month or two, they'd spend $5,000 a month just on testing out some keywords and messages and so forth to see if it was resonating, to see if it was working, that they were going to get that. Well, there are some other companies who don't spend $5,000 after they launch their campaign. And there may not even be enough keywords in their industry. There may not be enough searches in their industry even to to spend $5,000 on it. So you do have this small data problem sometimes in terms of validation. And when you get into really advanced marketing Attribution modeling, it requires a huge amount of data and a lot of sophistication as well. You know, unfortunately, you're in a situation with marketing where you can't always give those completely valid. We know if we put a dollar here, it's going to produce X dollars of new revenue six months from now and so forth. To some degree, you can do that and you can in some channels and to some degree, you can't. You have to go by the feedback you're getting from the market, your feedback you're getting from sales and, and so forth. But the challenge, as I was saying before, is that these channels do become exhausted. So for example, when inbound marketing was first outlined back in 2006, the internet had less than a sixth of as many domains and pages as it does today. It was much easier to get high on page one search rankings in 2006 than it is today. Today, it's almost impossible. Only one study showed that only one in 20 pieces of new content gets anywhere on page one within a year. Wow. And that's usually from companies that already have the domain authority in that industry. And since half of the clicks happen in the first three links on page one, just getting to page one isn't even going to drive much business. 
you have to get to the very top of page one, and that typically takes two or three years and a lot of domain authority. And and that's why even the CEO of, of HubSpot, which created the whole inbound approach that and has evangelized around it for a dozen years, he now, every time you hear him talk about the efficacy of inbound, he always says, inbound still works at scale. And he always puts in that phrase, at scale. And that scale can be, HubSpot has spent $100 million on their inbound marketing. Again, that's not a scale that a lot of companies are going to undertake. Large enterprises will. VC-backed companies will. There's an opportunity in just a few other situations, like if you're in a brand new industry, like if you were going to do inbound for artificial intelligence five years ago, maybe there was an opportunity there, but there isn't today. So you really, as a marketer, you have to be quite nimble. The same thing was true in social media. Back in 2013, organic followers of a brand on Twitter or Facebook, 10, sometimes 15 or even 20% of the followers would see a post from that brand. Today, that number is under 2%. So we're saying less than 1 in 50 followers of a brand even see a post by the brand because the platforms, A, realized that people really wanted to see messages from other people. They didn't want to see messages from brands all that much. They weren't interacting with them. And B, every other platform charges companies to get their messages out to their customers. And and so the social media platform said, well, we're going to start using advertising too. So there's great opportunities with social media in terms of paid ads because you've got tremendous targeting tools using social media in a number of different ways. But the organic possibilities that were pretty good back in 2012, 2013, those are hardly exist at all. Well, that makes a hell of a lot of sense. And I'd like to talk about something very close to my heart, which is uh, recruitment and marketeers in particular. And I'd like to focus on channel marketing recruitment. What are the qualities, the habits that great channel marketeers have that set them apart from the humdrum? So one of my clients is a company called the Predictive Index. I'm going to put a plug in for them because I used to be very skeptical of job kind of assessments, employee assessments, prospective candidate assessments. And yet I head up a group in Boston called Sales and Marketing Innovators. And we had the VP of, of Sales and Marketing, Drew Fortin from the Predictive Index talk about a year ago. And he let each of us take their test and their test is like ridiculously easy to take. It literally takes you 10 minutes. The feedback that it gave, the profile of me that it gave was more accurate than... I was just astonished at how accurate it was because in other situations where I'd seen results of personality tests, employment tests, they had not been very accurate at all. You know, my feeling was a third of it was accurate, a third of it was inaccurate, and a third of it could have applied to anything. This predictive index test results, I thought, were really kind of very surprisingly accurate and useful. So I'm actually going to put in a plug for them because I think that that's one of the things. But I think that good marketers, whether it's channel marketers or anybody, they have a, a consistent set of principles they're inquisitive. They have to be learners because this field is changing so quickly. 
They have to be comfortable on both the creative side and the data side. They have to be customer focused and understand the customer stories have to be very important and not just telling the product stories. Understand those stages in the customer buying process and what customers are looking for in different stages. Have to be able to work closely with sales. And in the case of the channel marketing people, to really understand back from the channel what they're hearing and what's working for them and what's not working. I don't think it's a big secret sauce. I think it's what goes into uh, really good marketers just kind of extended out into the channel area. Well, we use psychometrics and behavioral profiling a lot. And they are a very useful component of predicting success in role before you hire people and also to help transition people from one role to another. So when you're doing succession planning, so absolutely get that. So I'll take the profile report back on what I've discovered. Take a look at that. And another interesting thing that PI says is you may have what you think is a great candidate, and then their profile comes back with a couple of things that may not be the exact perfect fit for what you were looking for. But maybe they're still the best candidate, but you just have to go into it as a manager knowing the things that you're going to have to manage. Absolutely. Well, one of our partners, Extended Disc, has created what's effectively an excuse index for salespeople. (laughs) It's very, very useful because if someone has a high score on the excuse index, you're probably going to spend an awful lot of time listening to them blame everything other than take responsibility. And that's been very useful for our clients. That's something, when I owned my agency and I I did a lot of hiring, one of the tests, one of the questions that I had was, tell me something that you did that you're really proud of that succeeded and what's the story behind it? And then, okay, now tell me something that failed and why did it fail? And it's really a trick question because what you're looking for is, Do they take responsibility or do they blame? Absolutely. And the people who basically say, oh, you know, the customer sucked, you know, the client didn't know what they were talking about. I couldn't get other people in the company. You know, if they're blaming everybody else and not taking responsibility, then that's a real problem. Couldn't agree more. I'm conscious we're coming to the top of the hour, so I don't want to overstay my welcome. I do have one more question around customer experience, which... Obviously, it's become something of a sort of trendy thing out in the market. We exist in business because of the customer. And what I've seen over the years, and that's well into my fourth decade in business now, is that people rarely align closely enough with that customer experience, that customer journey. And in your book, you talk about mapping that customer journey. I'd love for us to finish on that point in terms of the best practices and why we should do that. Yeah, I think that that's so critical today. And and it's amazing because Forrester does an annual survey of hundreds of, I think it's over 100,000 consumers in the US, about hundreds of brands and what they, how they rate the customer experience. And that customer experience index has been flat or declining for the last three or four years. Really? Which is, which is just shocking because it's so important. I saw this blog post from this very prominent CEO. He was talking about 
at his conference, this one talk, their annual conference, this one talk had been like the talk of the conference. Everybody had been talking about how great it was. And it was a guy talking about brand messages. Very much was not about company messages. It was like comparing brand messages to characters in the Marvel comic universe. And that you knew what each of those characters was about and you your brand need to be as clear as that and how you, you needed to make your brand really stand out that way. But then they were getting into the real minutia of a brand statement or a value statement. And a customer is not going to notice subtle differences in the wording of your brand statement anywhere near as much or remember as they are their customer experience. and. That's what they're going to tell people about. That's what they're going to remember when they want to do business with you. We've all had great customer experiences, both as consumers and as business people, and we've had terrible ones. And when I give talks, I ask people, when I get to the point about customer experience, I'll ask people in in the audience, you know, what's a company that you've worked with or that you've, as a consumer, interacted with that you've had a great customer experience? And it may be the Apple Genius Bar. Or they, people may be very happy with how Amazon handles uh, returns. And that was certainly a big reason why Amazon bought Zappos, because of the great customer experience that that company had created. And you have that on the B2B side as well. And so customer experience is just so, so critical, because that, to me, is your brand. More than any statement or catchphrase, or advertisement, or piece of marketing, that customer experience is what people are going to remember about you, and that's what's going to stick in their mind, and that's what they're going to tell others. Excellent. Louis, thank you so much. I've thoroughly enjoyed the conversation, and I'd very much like to reconvene a future date, particularly to talk around channels and channel marketing. What I'd really like to finish on is... If you were to look back at your 25-year-old self, what advice would you give you in terms of bypassing some of the best mistakes that you've made? (laughs) Well, I've made some very good ones, Marcus. (laughs) I don't know. You know, my 25-year-old self had very different interests. (laughs) I'm one of those people who came into marketing from the creative side. My background was in theater. And I was you know, a playwright and a director. And then I also studied film and, and video in college. And after racking up enough debt trying to do theater, <laughs> I decided to take those skills into a field that would actually pay me for them, which was marketing. And that's where you know, I got to work with Coleco and, and many other major companies and now startups and, and so many others. It's been a long, strange journey. I don't know what I, because my 25-year-old self wasn't pointing to where I am today, I don't know what my career advice would be. I mean, if someone really... Let me ask a fairer question in that case. Okay. If you look back over your time in marketing, what are the best mistakes that you've made that you've really learned from? And they were watershed moments. Oh, there's so many. It's funny, that question that I told you when I was hiring people, when I'd say, what's something that, that you failed at? You wishful. Yeah, what was something you failed at and, and you know, why did you fail? And, and people apparently thought it was a trick question because they would say, I can't think of something that I failed at. And I'd say, 
I fail at things several times a week. And so I'm not going to accept that answer. <laughs> I think one of the best lessons that I've learned is failure in role is inevitable. And learning to accept that and recognizing it as the best teacher has certainly been fundamental to my evolving success. In my career, I can't remember any significant victory from which I really learned something important. But it's all those little mistakes along the way that have made such a big difference. And capturing those lessons and being vulnerable enough to admit them. So I'm curious, in terms of your own experience, making all those iterative mistakes and then capturing your lessons, how's that affected your ability to come to the point where you are now? Yeah, well, I think that that is at the heart of constantly learning. So for example, when I had my first agency and we were very focused on corporate communications and video, and then in the late 90s and early 2000s, that market, that video market really dried up. And then the whole, what I experienced was that the phone stopped ringing with the 2002 recession. So one of my course corrections then was I wanted a recurring revenue model because I didn't want to be dependent on projects. And that's when we pivoted and became a SaaS company before it was even called SaaS. Back then it was called an application service provider. We happened to be, it was funny, I went to a SaaS conference and an early SaaS conference and these CEOs who had shrink wrap on-premise software were talking about how different it was to be SaaS because you were so much closer to the customer suddenly. And being close to the customer is something we'd always been. We were an agency. We worked directly with our customers all the time. That was a major course correction that I made. Now, the people who stayed in video, you know, they went through like 10 lean years. And then by 2010 or so, bandwidth was enough on the internet that people wanted professional video again. And it came back in a very different form because the price structure was very different and so forth. But suddenly it was back. I think what you have to be, as you were saying, Marcus, is you always have to have you know, your antenna up. You always have to be looking at what's working and what's not and making those course corrections. And so there's, and it's very much like marketing. Because if you think back 50 years ago, marketing was all about big bets and big stories, the big idea, the David Ogilvie big idea. That was when you're going to have the Marlboro Man or the Jolly Green Giant or you know, all those sorts of campaigns. And today, marketing is about 100 ideas and trying a lot of different pieces of content and search ads and blog posts and videos and infographics and social media activities and so forth and figuring out which ones actually resonate and then amplifying those and so forth. And I I think that that's what we often call agile approach is a lot of what's informed the way that I've kind of approached my life and career. and, And it's kind of at the heart of how people have to be doing marketing today. Well, you mentioned the agile approach and in the book, you talk about the seven points from Sprint Zero. I think that's a really fantastic list. Why don't we finish on that? Just give a quick overview of why it's such a powerful model to pursue. Well, agile is about being responsive to what's happening in the market and, and what is working and what isn't. 
So what you're referring to there, Sprint Zero, because one of the methodologies in Agile marketing is Scrum. And Scrum organizes itself into a series of two to four week sprints, typically, where you have a certain time box to get certain projects done. And it actually picked up this idea from Agile software development because software developers were saying, you know, we don't have time anymore to do three or five year big projects and find out at the end that it's, it wasn't right. We have to create faster and be closer to the customer. So those seven pieces, uh, the seven concepts in the Agile Marketing Manifesto from 2012, just to read through them real quickly, validated learning over opinions and conventions. So that means use data. Customer-focused collaboration over silos and hierarchy. Adaptive and iterative campaigns over big bang campaigns. The process of customer discovery over static prediction. So acting on that feedback and not just saying what you you think it's going to be. Flexibility versus rigid planning. Responding to change over following a plan. And many small experiments over a few large bets. And those are all at the center of Agile. And in in my book, I interview one of the two people who convened Sprint Zero and who's now an Agile trainer and helps companies implement the Agile approach. And he even talks about how you shouldn't be developing an annual marketing budget. You should be developing, say, a series of quarterly budgets based on what you've been doing and what you see that you're going to need for the next quarter. And uh, you know, I have a client right now who is saying, oh, we want to develop a, an annual budget. And I was saying, I really think you should just be thinking about what's the ballpark figure that you're going to budget, but not to break it down to what is each approach, what are you going to put into each program or each channel? Because we're going to find out along the way where the best places to what's working, what's not working, and where the best places to put the money are. Well, point seven that you made, many small experiments over a few large bets, is basically evolution, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. That's how we evolve. So I think the conclusion today is evolve or die. Absolutely, and that's certainly true in business more today than it's ever been. Louis, thank you so much. I've thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. Look forward to speaking again many times in the future. And thank you. Thank you, Marcus. Pleasure. This is Marcus Kauke from the Inquisitor podcast signing off. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please like, comment, and share. And Louis, how can people get hold of you and where can they get hold of Bullseye Marketing? Well, Bullseye Marketing is available on Amazon. And people can get in touch with me at Louis, L-O-U-I-S, at revenueassociates.biz. I'm on Twitter at Louis Gadima. I'm on LinkedIn. And I'm launching a new podcast, the Software Channel Partner Podcast, that you are one of my first guests on, Marcus, which is great. And people uh, certainly can look for that by the beginning of April. Here we are in 2019 on iTunes and uh, Google Podcasts and, and other services. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Louis. And I will speak to you soon. Bye-bye. All right. Take care. Thank you.